Hey everybody, this is Brett. And I'm Christian. And you're listening to the Gilded Films Podcast. The best of 1946. Everybody and welcome back to Gilda Films podcast. So it's been a little bit. Um, it's been a while. Life's life's gotten in the way for a bunch of us. Big moves, really, for both of us, and you know, a lot of things happening. But we're back, and we're talking about 1946. So if you're still here with us, thank you for sticking around. You've probably listened to our bonus episodes, which were a great fun to do. But we're back with our. Uh, general episodes we're going to bring you some movies to talk about from 1946 if you have been listening which we hope you have you know that we talked about some other things henry v the razor's edge the yearling it's a wonderful life and the winner of the best picture of 1946 the best years of our lives as always it is i christian bonjour we have brett hey what's up hello hello and welcoming back with us is Haley. hello Haley. hello Good to have you back. Um, you all watch these. I watch these. We have uh, a lot to talk about, including question mark, our most controversial movie we've ever spoken about. Woo. Okay, so well, let's get into it then, shall we? Because we've got the first one from YouTube's. All right, yeah, I'll jump right in. Um, and so the first one is actually one that Haley picked. Uh, Haley was the one to go with an international movie this time. And it is the French film from Jean Cocteau, uh, Beauty and the Beast. And so obviously we've talked about the animated version before on this podcast. Now we're going way back, um, almost 50 years prior to talk about a different version of that because there have been many. Um, I mean, so this one, the plot is, is, I feel like we know the plot. The plot's pretty much the same um, when it comes to Beauty and the Beast. There are differences throughout. I think like the animated version, a big part of that is Gaston and he's not here um so that's kind of a weird thing there's another one who kind of takes his place here but he's not quite as evil um but basically it's the same basic story of a beautiful young woman named named bell um who her father is kind of wandering through the woods gets caught up with the beast in his mansion and um Basically, to save his life, Belle becomes the prisoner of the Beast. And so we know how things go. We find out that the Beast is not, although he does look kind of terrifying, you know, this many years removed, some might think he looks a little bit goofy in this version. I actually think he looks kind of cool. If you think, you know, back in 1946, what they were doing with the makeup on him, I think it's pretty neat. Um, but to come to find out that the Beast himself actually used to be this really handsome prince and that there is much more to them to him than meets the eye and the same can be same for bell as well she's more than just a pretty face and so they kind of discover those things about each other and it goes the route that we know the fairy tale to go um so yes that's kind of the the, the basic introduction to beauty and the beast um this is one that was not nominated for any oscars it wasn't up for like international film that was um that was like an honorary category this year 
um, I believe, or was, I don't even know if it was in place yet. Um, but yeah, wasn't up for any awards, didn't get anything there, but interesting film. I'm actually gonna let Haley give her thoughts first since she picked this and we will kind of go from there. I loved it. Um, I'm a sucker for any type of fairy tale spinoff. And obviously this is not a spinoff per se. It's the OG, if you will. Um, but I really enjoyed it. I, most of the time when you hear about fairy tales and their original stories or even their original movies, they are terrifying and they often are just really, really sad. And I felt like this one, like, was the same as what I know from watching the animated version of Beauty and the Beast. So I really enjoyed that aspect of it. And then I also just enjoyed the characters. I thought they were funny. I thought that they were just wonderful in this film. So yeah, I loved it. 10 out of 10 for me. Mm. I would watch again. Okay. I also liked the costumes. I think the best part was them trying to do the animation. If you've ever watched the animated version of Beauty and the Beast, you know that there's Mrs. Potts and the little teacup and they're all like very joyful and happy and bouncing around. And I will say the one creepy aspect of this film was the animation that they did for these, these characters that you might know in the mansion being alive. They actually had like real people like doing the things and faces inside of the mansion and whatnot that would appear and it was pretty creepy but also mm -hmm. very creative and just really cool I thought it was very well done yeah um I was hoping that somebody would pick this and good thing that you did um I've always really loved this this is I think when we watched it last night I told Toby that this is the most watched like french movie i've ever seen because we tend this is like my fourth time watching it it's great um it's beautiful like kaylee said costumes are great the makeup on the actual beast is incredible for the time mm -hmm. um i really like the period costumes too because they're just like i don't know some of the weirder stuff that it fits the time period perfectly and then you have bell the best part of this oh my gosh the best part of this is when bell goes back to her family she's wearing the glove and she comes through the wall like the, if you would call them <laughs> visual effects of this are yeah. for the time, incredible, like true fairy tale there. Um, I was just wondering, like, when are they going to start singing? No, not really, but you know, uh, but uh, no, it's good. And it, reading the fun facts on IMDb and finding out that Walt Disney never made Beauty and the Beast because he never felt that it could live up to this. So it only took until like post his mm -hmm. death 30 some years later for like, them to do it and do it right to like even succeed on this level that's kind of amazing like even he thought i can't do what this movie's doing wow yeah um and also i guess it's kind of you know gay because the director and the beast weren't a thing oh oh yeah oh you didn't know that oh yeah, he was his muse and other ways Oh yeah, and then also um, another thing was really cool that I read through the fun facts and kind of realized too that a lot of audience members and supposedly Greta Garbo and Marlena Dietrich both said this, but when he transforms back into a human, they wanted more of the beast than the human because he has such humanistic like qualities. You get to care for him and understand mm -hmm. 
that it's like, I want the beast back. Which then thinking through the 91 animated movie, when he turns into a human, I'm like, I'd rather have this man as the beast. He's better looking. You really get to know him and understand him and you feel for him. I get that he, you know, his goal is to turn back into a human, whatever, break his own curse. But like, even in this one, you love the guy as a beast. Yeah. Rather than like the strong jawed Frenchman. Bonjour. Yeah. Because then he appears as like any other Frenchman in the movie. Yeah. You know, when he returns back. So yeah, I definitely understand that. He uh, specifically turns back as the one that was kind of a doucher. To be yes. quite frank. Yes. <laughs> like and then the, that one, they, they, yeah. they kind of like swap places, which I thought was kind of cool, actually. I, I don't know. I thought it's it was Freaky Friday. Cool. Like it made <laughs> it made the curse make sense to me, like the way that all happened. But yeah, I, I felt bad for Belle because she was kind of like, oh, oh, but it's also this guy. <laughs> it's also different for the original beast because he the guy who trans sorry, I guess we kind of spoiled this, but the bad guy transforms into the beast at the end and he transforms because he's a doucher. The original beast was never a bad guy. Um, like we find out he had this curse placed on him because his parents like insulted um, the mythical figures behind this. And so, I don't know, it's kind of interesting. Um, for me, this was like a, a George Melies film, sound version, um, because I think it has some of those more like fantastical, magical elements in the way it uses visual effects, because there are a lot of trick shots in the movie. Basically, I think that this movie as it could have very easily been a silent movie um one because there's not a ton of dialogue in it i mean there are there are certainly conversations that take place but a lot of it is just kind of imagery and emotion and so i could have easily and i know this was this story was certainly made as a silent film i'm sure multiple times um but this version i could have easily seen you know if they take out the sound put in intertitles you could easily mistake it for an original silent film. Mm-hmm. Um, part of that too is just because the production design is pretty brilliant. Um, I think it's the best from this year. And for the reasons Haley mentioned that it, it blends, it has this kind of old atmosphere to it, but it also includes those kind of characters or those those people that re- replace the Mrs. Potts in this version, I guess I would say, um, where she goes in and all the hands are like coming out and like pointing and whatnot. That's creepy as fuck, but it's also pretty cool too. Um, and it's also, the, the movie itself is kind of surreal in a way. It's definitely, having only seen one Jean Cocteau film before this, which we talked about before, it was Orpheus, uh, from 1950 it makes sense that he directed this movie because I think he kind of has those surreal aspects to his his mode as a filmmaker um, but no, personally I really I enjoyed the film a lot I think the technical aspects in particular are really great like I would give this wins for best international film of course but also like the production design um, the the visual effects the makeup and hair obviously all those, it kind of runs away with those categories for me. Yeah. Um, it's a very feeling film. Yes, absolutely. 
costumes, there's another film I like a little bit more, and we'll get to that later. But um, the costumes are brilliant here as well. Hmm. Interesting. Wonder what it's going to be. Yes. Did this win anything or was it nominated? Did not. Did not. Sad. Single Oscar nomination. Unfortunately. But yeah, good film worth checking out. Good French film to dive into French films, I would say. Definitely, because it's a very recognizable story. Yes. Also, the ending is kind of like you said, it's very surreal because he's like, yeah, is it okay that I look like your friends or your sister's friend? She's like, <laughs> he's like, all right, let's fly. Okay. <laughs> Wee. Yeah, it's fascinating. Taylor's <laughs> all this time. All right. Uh, we will actually have a connection to Mrs. Potts later too. So uh, stay tuned for that as well. Um, oh yeah, we will, yeah, won't we? Was, yeah. What does Emma Thompson have to do with this? I was thinking of the look. Okay. Oh, so you were thinking started. of the 2017. Don't get me started on the second live action version of this because that's like, ooh, that's a train wreck. We hate that movie. I don't Great. think I've ever watched it. Don't. Oh, honey, we watched it together. You just don't did remember really? it. <laughs> did I fall asleep? I think you probably did. I probably. Well, there's your answer. There's all the answers. <laughs> all right. Any further thoughts on Beauty and the Beast before we move on to our next one? No. The way I tell a good movie is if I fall asleep or not, because I fall asleep during everything. And I did mm. not fall asleep during this movie. Can confirm. There you go. Now, the next movie. The next movie, I was very much, and Toby as well, this is a Brett movie, so mm-hmm. take it away. It is. This is this is our LA, LA Confidential of this year, I think. Um, but this is the one, this is one of them that I picked. Um, actually, one that I've owned for a while, because I got it during the Warner Archives sale and hadn't watched it until this point. But it is from Howard Hawks, The Big Sleep. And so this is one of the, I think, the more recognizable film noir movies from the 1940s. It stars Humphrey Bogart in the lead role as Philip Marlowe, character created by Raymond Chandler in his novels. And Humphrey Bogart's wife, Lauren Bacall, uh, stars alongside him as um, the daughter of the person he's kind of working for. But don't want to explain the plot too much, just because if I do, it's going to sound confusing. Um, but basically how it starts is that we, we start right away with Marlowe and he is brought to the mansion of General Sternwood. It starts out where Sternwood, um, his daughter, Carmen, the youngest of his two daughters has these gambling debts that she's being blackmailed for by this bookseller. And so he basically hires on Bogey to help settle these debts for him and get things figured out so that she's no longer being blackmailed and kind of get her on the right path. We come to find out that there's a lot more to it than that. Um, the Sternwoods, both the general and his two daughters, Carmen and Vivian, um, who is who Bacall plays, they're involved with some pretty shady people. Um, and they're all kind of wrapped up in their own little conflicts. Um, and how it basically comes about is that Marlowe, as he's trying to do this job for General Sternwood, he gets wrapped up more and more into the different webs of what they're all involved with. There's a lot of gambling. There's a lot of murder. Um, 
there's gangsters, there's, there's a lot going on here. And so I think this is one where a lot of people do find this movie confusing, um, which I think is understandable because it takes a lot of twists and turns, not just in the plot, but in the characters per se. And I would say for me, it's not that the film is confusing in that things aren't explained or heavily implied. It's confusing in that, or it can be confusing in that there's a lot of names. Um, a lot of characters come and go, and there are still characters being introduced really late into the movie that are important to this whole thing. And so I really adored this movie because it's what I like from a hard-boiled detective noir in that Humphrey Bogart's character can be just as confused as we are. It feels like we're placing, the, the film is placing us alongside him because while all these names are showing up and rattling our brains, they have to be rattling his brain too. He has to figure this out. And so rather than just paint the perfect picture for us, it says, you're in this with him. Um, and for me, as I was watching, I did get a little confused at times. Um, I'm like, who is that again? How, what's their motivation behind this? After the film ended and I was like able to like reflect on it a little bit more, it became a lot clearer to me um, why everything happened the way it did. But to me, this is just pretty much the prototype in some ways for what you could expect from not just a noir film. I wouldn't say that. I would say more of a prototype of specifically hard-boiled detective hero-ish noir film. That's especially one that's adapted from a novel. Um, this is also written by William Faulkner, who, which I didn't even know he, he wrote movies. Um, but that probably explains why it's a little bit confusing too. Um, but most of all, I, Humphrey Bogart, I always love Humphrey Bogart. And that's the case here as well. He is a total asshole in this movie that I can't help but adore in some ways. Like he is just, he's funny. He goes about his way and he's going to do what he's going to do. And nobody's going to stop him because he wants to get this shit figured out. Um, I think what I actually loved most about this, though, is even if there might be some issues with the screenplay on a narrative level, I think it's pretty fantastic from a dialogue level. Nothing is said like in a straightforward manner. It's all very snappy. These characters are constantly like basically talking shit to each other um, throughout the all of them throughout the entire movie. And nothing is kind of presented on its face, which I think works well for a film like this. And so I don't, I don't think this is one that's maybe going to, to hit people as a film noir as much as some others, but it really did a number on me. And the score by Max Steiner is also pretty brilliant. So that's what I've got on the big sleep. Mm, yeah, it was fine. <laughs> so I thought we were supposed to be watching something else. I thought we were supposed to be watching to have and have not. And I was like, so pumped for it. I was like, oh yeah, their first movie together. And then I'm like, wait a minute, wait a minute. This the bit, oh, this movie that I've seen that I know people are confused by it because the last time I watched it, I read like a side-by-side -side comparison of the two edits of it. And I didn't have fun with it the last time. And I didn't have fun with it this time either. I like Bogart, I like Bacall. I was just super confused throughout the whole thing. And it is the whole names. There's a bunch of names that come and go. I couldn't keep up with who. I need like a visual representation. 
people in these movies in the 1940s, all these white men look the same to me if you're not Humphrey Bogart. I was fully expecting like Sydney Greenstreet to show up and Peter Lorre and do something like looking for a falcon, a Maltese falcon, so we should say. Thank you. Um, I don't know. It's fine. I wouldn't seek it out again. But yeah, I don't know. I don't know what else to say, except it was it was very confusing. And yeah. Mm. Have you seen Javin Have Not? Yes, I've seen okay. all okay. Of the yeah, I've seen all okay. four of the Bacall Bogart movies. Yeah, okay. Your thoughts? Mm-hmm. Um I felt like it got long. Like it didn't keep me as entertained as I would have liked at points in the movie. But other than that, I thought it was really good. I also, I am guilty of if a movie is getting long, I will distract myself with other things. So I will say that I was on my phone a bit during this movie. So maybe that's why I didn't get confused because I wasn't paying attention enough to get confused if that makes sense I don't know if that no. makes sense but no. <laughs> um I will say my favorite show my favorite part of this movie was Carmen the younger sister I thought she was just so fucking funny and she was always involved in something in some place she shouldn't have been because she at the very beginning of the film is described as kind of a wild child And every time she ended up somewhere doing something she shouldn't have been or involved with people she shouldn't have been, it was just like the funniest thing ever because this detective was just like, seriously, like, why are you here again? And he would get so angry with her. And then, of course, there's this whole thing between the detective and Vivian. So he'd go and talk to Vivian and she'd just be like, I, I don't know, I don't know, blah, 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 and not telling him things throughout the whole movie. Just very comical, very comical. A lot of, it feels like there's a lot of going around in circles to things and trying to get answers out of somebody and everybody's like, yeah, I'm on a totally different page than you are. I don't even know what you're, I don't even know what you're detecting anymore. Yeah. Well, and then I also just feel like he's going around trying to figure out information and they're all just like, I don't know. I don't know. Like being coy, like they don't know when they actually know right. literally everything. Why would you tell so, them? I don't know. Maybe at some point Vivian would, but it took yeah. her the whole fucking movie to start giving him information, which was nuts to me, but it's fine. No, I agree. I really like like Carmen as well and Martha Vickers who plays her I thought she was I thought she was pretty funny um but in a dark way too like she's very funny but also very sinister Mm -hmm. um like do not trust her um Mm -hmm. whereas Vivian also someone you probably shouldn't trust but I feel like she's more involved because her sister's involved and she's trying to get her sister out of shit most of yes, the time. Yeah. Like Vivian yeah. likes to gamble, but aside from that, like her sister is the one that's getting into all of the trouble. Creating all the issues. Yeah. Yeah. Like if it was up to Vivian, she just she just go sit and gamble and be done with it. Yeah. 
I will say as much as I enjoyed it and I enjoyed it a lot, but it is one that you might have to like read up on it afterwards. And so if you don't like doing that, probably not going to be your type of movie. So, and also fully know that there are two versions of this movie. Yes. Yeah. And I still, did, did you determine which one we watched? All of, you, I know it's, Yeah. When you said 114 minutes, you watched the theatrical. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. hundred. Which is weird because 114 minutes is theatrical. 116 was a recut. So only a two minute difference. Yeah. Mm. But yeah, that's the big sleep. Um, no Oscar noms. Um, this is one of many where, where Hawks didn't get any love whatsoever. And so y'all should watch Dark Passage. If we're speaking about Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall, it's from the point of view of him. So it's like the camera is his eyes and he's seeing everything, but his face is all bandaged up. So we don't see it for a while. Interesting. Yeah. Awesome. And he's like an escapee. Bacall's last name reminds me of a chicken. Yeah. I had not heard of Dark Passage, so that sounds interesting. And Key Largo, because Key Largo is pretty Mm. good. They only made four movies together. They do have good chemistry. So this is the movie they had their fair on. All right. Any other thoughts on The Big Sleep before our next one? Speaking of affairs. Yes. Our next one is kind of the ultimate romantic affair movie. It is David Lean's Brief Encounter. Um, There's actually another one that Haley picked. Um, one that I think all, all of us were excited to see. Um, I had never seen it before, um, but this is a story of... Laura Jessen, who's played by Celia Johnson, who um, is just a, a typical woman um, who, you know, spends her, I think it's like her Tuesdays or Thursdays. She, she's usually a stay-at-home wife, but she goes out and goes shopping and goes and sees a movie and does that, you know, one day a week while her husband's at work. And one day while she's on this trip, she encounters Dr. Alec Harvey, who's played by Trevor Howard. It starts off very random, very innocent. He kind of helps her like pull some dust from her eye or something like that. But there's also like an instant unspoken connection between the two. And it so comes that they can't help it. They meet again. She agrees to meet him once more, even though she knows she probably shouldn't. And they embark on an affair. Um, It's honestly... It's not innocent, but it's not the type of affair where they're like hooking up every day. Um, they basically, they meet up once a week at this train station and they go and see movies together and go sit on a bridge and just talk. Um, I think the way that it presents this affair is, is really interesting and I'll get to why in, in a second, but um what the film largely consists of is this moral dilemma between the two characters and more specifically within Laura. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very much told from her point of view. In fact, the film begins as if she was going to tell her husband what happened. This is how she would say it. Um, and so it's in a way, it's all kind of told in flashback just to tell this brief but very impactful 
relationship between her and this man. Um, keeping in mind that this film was made in 1946. It takes place in the era. This is not something that is acceptable. Um, I mean, you think it's not acceptable today. It's especially unacceptable in 1940s, especially for a woman, um, at least from society's view. Um, and so I think the film is pretty revolutionary in that way that it tells the story in a very honest fashion, but also tells it from her point of view specifically. Um, but like I said, Haley did pick this one. So before I go much deeper, I'm going to let her give her thoughts. And once again, we'll go from there. I loved it and I hated it all at the same time. Um, the hate is because, right? Like I come from a divorced household. So anytime anything has to do with affairs or anything like that, I just, I, I don't understand how you get to that point <laughs> or let yourself get to that point. So I think that, um, that for me, I struggled with just, just because of the affair in itself, which is why I was like, ah, oh, this is sad. But the film itself, I actually do really love it at the same time because these, I feel like these characters are so complex. Like it's very obvious that Laura is a good person and this is not something that she intended to do or meant to do it's obviously very apparent that she is remorseful and fear you know it like Brett had said coming from the beginning of the film where she's she's sitting down like she's about to tell her husband this like it's it's obvious that she feels terrible about it and then I also just I can't help but love the love story like I they're they're just magical together throughout this film. And you can see the pain that they're going through and having this affair. And it just, I, I don't know, it's just really complex. And I feel like it's really, really well done. And I don't know any other film that I've ever watched, especially with an affair involved that has made me feel for those having the affair and I think that is a testament to how good the film is because usually I'm just like oh, I fucking hate those people they're terrible but I don't in this movie yeah that's the good thing about it too is like you feel for them even though you know like if this were made today I think if this were made today it'd be more like a comedy than anything mm. or if it was a drama it'd be very steamy there'd be a shit ton of sex scenes yeah yeah which now, okay, no, no, because I'm thinking of another movie, but I'm like, is that a remake of this? It's based off of another book. Anyway, um, no, both are incredible in this. I really love Celia Johnson in this. Um, I, because of the whole year, because this came out in 45, I guess, in UK. Right. And then 46 here, I've had to change some personal things around because of her. Yeah, so hint, hint there. But um, no, I've always really loved this film. I was very excited to see it again. I only seen it the one time, bought it on Criterion and got to see it again. I think it's fantastic. Um, David Lean, I obviously we know him from like the big epic stuff like Lawrence of Arabia, Bridge, Dr. Zhivago. But to see that he can also do these very home-based dramas 
that's, I think that's beautiful direction there. And to get to the heart of it, of two characters who shouldn't be doing this at all. And then little side characters too, in the train station. Mm-hmm. Um, what is it? It's Eliza Doolittle's dad. And then the one lady. Yeah. Um, they're oh, fun the characters. The lady too. who owns it or whatever. Yeah. Joyce Carey. You know, it's, like, yeah. it's like every time somebody comes in, they're like, give me some brandy. And she's like, yeah, it's after hours. Yeah. <sighs> and also I'm noticing, I noticed through this too, and I do know that they go to various places, but the real chunk of the majority of this movie is within that train station area. It's the coming and the going and the going and the coming. And it is that brief encounter. It's that one little brief encounter leads to all of this and they have to keep having these little brief encounters in order for this affair to succeed. So I also really like the husband in this. I know the husband is so nice and just- And there's like those moments where she's like telling him what's happening and he's like, yeah, that's nice, dear. He's so clueless and out of it. And it's like, maybe (laughs) this is why this is happening, sir. Communication. too that she loves him though because even yeah. though like he seems kind of aloof at times right like he they're I feel like settled into their life as a married couple and they do their own things but they do them together if you will um and you know it sometimes he's not paying attention as much as he should be and she's trying mm-hmm. to trying to explain this but you can tell it's just like breaking her heart I think it's just a, the societal expectation too, though. Like in 1940s in London, as bad as this sounds, from the patriarchal point of view, the woman stays home, does her thing, does not, does not be unfaithful to her husband. Right. And men get and to so, do whatever the fuck they want to exactly. do so, all the fucking time. I, I don't understand. But I think like culturally that that's an explanation for why he doesn't suspect anything especially because laura is such a sweet person very like a a person who does come off as very honest i think she is very honest because she consistently wants to tell her husband what's going on you see Um, a lot of like the internal struggle with her too and just like celia johnson's performance too mm -hmm. celia johnson does a lot with her eyes in this movie um, and just with her face that without saying anything that I think I also think she's pretty brilliant here. Um, I could see why she would throw a loop in some of your personal awards because um, I think she's pretty brilliant. For me, this movie. I really enjoyed this movie a lot, and I think I enjoy it more since we watched it as I reflect back on it. I think at first I was maybe a bit disappointed just because I consistently heard of it as like one of the great movies of all time. And I didn't quite get that, but I think part of it is because it was kind of revolutionary in the story it told. Um, And so it deserves a lot of credit for that, but I just think it's really well edited too. Um, And the way it it basically, the movie is different chapters of the same thing. They go on this date, they, they connect once a week, they do this thing. She goes home to her husband, she feels terrible about it and they keep doing it, but it keeps it fresh. Nothing ever feels repetitive, um, which is kind of pretty impressive. I will say, this is my big bull take on this movie. Dr. Alec Harvey has done this before. I don't think he's as innocent as Laura is. He does not come off that way to me. I think he's either done this before or will do this before. And so 
he doesn't it doesn't feel to me throughout the movie like he feels as bad as she does right like mm. she's devastated and i feel like he's just kind of like you have to promise to meet me again blah 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 and it's like no bro she's devastated fucking leave her alone yeah. yes and i mean he's... also too they're getting out of, they're getting out of world war ii where they were probably her and her husband were already probably together most of the time for their own safety like girl True. have your internal struggle you can do what you want no that that's another reason why i'm glad this is told pretty entirely from the point of view of laura just because i feel like she it's a lot more clear with her that she does feel a, a sense of guilt about this i don't know if harvey does the same way i, I know he does to a degree but i also like i said i feel like it's a lot easier for him I would agree. Mm -hmm. um, I was going to look. This actually did have um, some Oscar success. It got three nominations this year. Uh, David Lean got nominated for Best Director. Uh, Celia Johnson got nominated for Actress. And the screenplay, screenplay from Noel Coward also got nominated, which I think makes sense because to me, those are the three best aspects of this movie. Um, three biggest reasons it works like it does. So... Noel Coward, Celia Johnson, one of Brett's favorite films in which we serve. <laughs> Not going to go there. <laughs> I'm surprised you're on a sassy streak today. No, we all hate it in which we serve, so it's okay. But yes, brief encounter. Any final thoughts on that one before going on to our next one? You should watch it if you are soon to be married, betrothed. Oh. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> <laughs> what are you implying, Christian? It's good to build strength in relationship by watching film. My favorite affair movie, Meryl Streep in It's Complicated. Mm. Oh. Haven't seen it. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> that could be a whole podcast in and of itself 2010 11 9 9 two, oh wow 2009 okay we should go to the next movie because it's really good and i'm really excited <laughs> for christian to introduce it because this is probably my favorite one that we okay all right well christian you do have our next one so go ahead and take us away do you hear that whistle down the line? I'm thinking that it's engine number 49. Well, I never thought I'd see the day when I ever took a ride on the Santa Fe. We're probably going to get sued for what it just did. Okay, so if you don't know what that song is from, it is from our next film, which is The Harvey Girls directed by George Sidney with musical numbers directed by Robert Alton. And it's a Judy Garland film. So, you know, you got to have fun with the Judy Garland film. And it tells a story of a group of women in the 1890s traveling on the Atchison, Topeka and Santa Fe Railroad to Arizona to be Harvey girls. Um, if you don't know what a Harvey girl is, then you probably don't live somewhere where railroads were pretty prosperous or, you know, you're living in 2022. It's not a thing anymore, kind of. So the Harvey House was a chain of restaurants on the railroad um, into the Old West, into the Midwest, that when 
passengers on the train would get off, they would go, they would be serviced with a nice meal, nice, you know, pot of coffee as you would. Basically a wonderful rest stop with quality service. The Harvey House girls were famous for their brand of service, yada, yada, yada. Actually in Kansas City, if you go to Union Station, we still have the Harvey House Diner here, which was another stop um, on the Harvey House location. It's it's in the so if you ever come to Kansas City, welcome. It's in the middle of Union Station. It used to be on the actual side where the original diner was, and there's pictures there that you can see of what it was like. There's also one in Hutchinson, Kansas. Um, there's it's an old building. I might have been demolished, but I've looked into all the Harvey House things. Anyway, so these women are on their way to this new uh, boomtown, and they meet Susan, who is played by Judy Garland. She's on her way to the same town, not to be a Harvey girl, but to answer an ad for a man who's wanting to get married. When she gets there, it's not what she thinks it's going to be, and he probably could say the same thing. Um, I mean, she's taking that risk and just answering an ad for marriage in the 1890s. Good God, girl, what up? <laughs> when, yeah, when she decides this is probably not for her, she decides to join the Harvey girls and to go through the training. But then there's the conflict within the town of a businessman, because, you know, capitalism is a thing, who owns a saloon and doesn't want that saloon to go out of business because the Harvey house is being more prosperous with everything so he'll stop at nothing to get his way and susan will also stop at nothing to keep the harvey house intact keep the girls doing what they're doing and everybody be happy and sing songs and dance around and it's a great fun it's i love this movie i really love anything that judy garland is in because how can you not love the woman um also we have john hodick in this um, Ray Bolger, who's the scarecrow, he has a wonderful, I would almost say it's like a, it's a brief performance. He's here, he's there, and then he has a wonderful dance number. And Angela Lansbury is in this. So there's our connection to the Beauty and the Beast that we were talking about. She's sort of the villain's secondhand woman, so to say. She's the saloon girl. She gets to do, you know, dress up in your saloon girl outfits. I'm sure you can picture that if you've seen enough Westerns. But this is a musical, hence why I sang. The biggest song in this is on the Atchison, Topeka, and the Santa Fe. It's great. I loved it. I always loved this. It was like, this is a hands-down brainer, like no brainer for me to pick. So go, because this is probably your both's first time. I loved it so much. Out of the movies that we watched, I think this one is one of the ones that kept me the most engaged and that I also had the most fun with um just from like the costumes and the colors to the singing the plot I loved the feud that happened between like the Harvey girls and then the saloon girls and everything that unraveled there I thought it was hilarious to watch and also just really fun um, I specifically love the feud that happens between Judy Garland's character and then like the head honcho saloon girl. I can't remember what her name is, um, but she was great. I really enjoyed her. Um, and then just the train scene in general, the way the movie opened with the train and the dancing and the singing, like, I don't think you could have 
a more fun opening to a movie to get you hooked and engaged to sit down and watch this film. And it just keeps going, which makes it so wonderful. For me, this is 10 out of 10. I typically like would not always sit back down and watch all of these films that I watch for the podcast, right? I would sit back down and watch this one in a heartbeat because I really, really enjoyed it. So I think it's on HBO Max. Go watch it again. Right? Well done, Christian. You found a top tier (laughs) film for me that I would buy and put in my little top tier film collection that I have, which is mainly 80s movies Mm -hmm. for context. I'm a sucker for any sort of rom-com type of romance. And just think, this is like, we got drama, 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 and finally like a nice, nice little musical that's harmless. Yes. And in Technicolor. And in Technicolor, yes. So pretty. I think that's what stood out to me about this one. Because, yeah, I as much as I loved a lot of the other movies we watched, and I love Black and White, it was nice. It was refreshing to, like, put on a, a good Technicolor musical. Um, and, of course, like you said, starring Judy Garland. I mean, can't go wrong there. Um, yeah, this was a lot of fun. I, I like how it's a musical. It's fun. It's colorful. But it's also a Western, you know? And I'm, I'm a Western guy. I like Westerns. So this was kind of a fun little mixture of the two. Um, like Christian said, I, I resonate with what you said about like, if you live by a railroad, you, you're more likely to know about the Harvey houses because that was a big thing where I grew up in Syracuse is that there used to be a big Harvey house there. Um, and it got burnt down, um, way back years and years ago. And so that where I grew up, that was kind of a, one of the more important pieces of our history that people knew about. Um, and so the, the Harvey houses and the Harvey, Harvey girls, they were a big deal. I think that if you, I don't know how common these are still today, but like if you go to those places like at Boot Hill and, and Dodge City or a place where they like have like a, um, a Western kind of theme park thing, you're probably going to find some of those waitresses that are kind of based on the Harvey girls. Mm-hmm. Um, and you'll probably find some of the saloon girls as well. And so to see a movie kind of put that to life and kind of show what that was like was pretty cool. Um, and yeah, the music is a lot of fun. This is one of those cases where the most well-known song from the movie is the best. Um, it's the one that really draws us in. It is a lot of fun. It's all over the place. A, I told you it was a bop. It is. And it's, it's lyrical too. Um, I know we're going to talk about another song here in a little bit and I'll, so I'll save it for that, but I know that, you had mentioned to me you wanted us to compare this to what won the next year. I have thoughts about that. Um, and so I'm looking forward to talking about that. So um, a lot of fun. I didn't love it quite as much as you two do, but I also didn't expect to because this is like right up both of your alleys. Um, I was never going to love this as much as you do. Come on. We, we knew that. We knew that. The disrespect but, for Judy Garland. Right. Judy's oh, great. no. I went to your rating thing because I was like, I don't think I saw what he rated on this. And it's at a, what is it? Like a four? Four. I think I had a 3.5, but it's probably going to be a four. So that's um, like a two. That's a two in my book. <laughs> well, but okay. For our lovely listeners, <laughs> 
I get to sit here and listen to what Brett would rate movies all the time because after every single movie we watch, I turn to him and I say, how many stars? Four is like really, really good for Brett. So he enjoyed the film, maybe not as much as you and I did, but a four is like top tier level for Brett Doe's. Depends on the year. But yeah, I mean, okay. I was just trying to defend you. Well, no, I appreciate that. it. I appreciate it. Um, but no, I there's there are things that's I don't know, like the the feud between the two factions I really liked, but I also wish it was a little bit more complex because what it is mostly, and I Angela Lansbury has a bit of redemption at the end, but for the most part, it's the really, really good Harvey girls and the really, really bad saloon girls. And I'm like you could go a little bit more complex than that. Like you could give the saloon girls a little bit more character. Um, and like, they're not that bad. Um, so that this was one of the four days. I know, I know. And like, yeah, it is part of where it's from, but I don't know. I would have liked it more if they had made it a little bit more deep than that. Um, but yeah, the capitalism stuff is obviously interesting um, because this is, largely about a, a, a business war um but no it has a really nice ending too so it's fun i will say one other thing that i really liked about this film in comparison to the rest that we watched for the podcast and especially if you all listen to the last podcast some of the like the oscar noms for that year and the winners and whatnot this one to me felt like it was actually like happy versus some of the other films that we watched, like, especially from the first podcast, were obviously very focused on the war. Um, so it it felt refreshing to me, like when we were going through and watching all these movies to just sit and watch a happy movie that was kind of fun and didn't really have much to do with the war to the extent that the other movies did it just it it felt fun to me which I think is sometimes needed when you're going through tough periods in your life or there are tough circumstances happening happening in the world for example like the war sometimes people Mm -hmm. just want to sit down and watch something that isn't completely focused on that yeah this is true um in reading about the harvey houses i guess that one of the three cities where they first opened in 1876 was lawrence kansas oh yeah there you can go um and also there's a harvey house museum in florence kansas and it's listed on our the national registry of historic places in 1973 so cool yeah Currently, it is at a museum. Huh, okay. I wonder if this place is actually open and, like, what is it? Road trip. <laughs> right. Interesting. I don't even know yeah, if you, go, if you go to, like, their Wikipedia page, you can see all the places um, where they were. Because, like Brett said, Syracuse, it was called the Sequoia. Mm-hmm. Closed in, yeah, closed in 1936. There's one in Dodge City that was closed in the 40s and just other places around the country it was mostly it looks like the southwest area so we were like the start and then it went southwest yeah yeah that makes sense florence is an hour and 45 minutes from us so Hmm. not a bad drive road trip and then we get there and it'd be closed population 465 
Oh gosh, that's a horror movie waiting to happen. Oh no, it's not. <laughs> but if you're from Florence listening to us, hey. <laughs> I grew up in a town smaller than that and it was pleasantly fine. So I'm sure Florence is great. Let's go. We shall see. Well, this did get a little bit of Oscar love. Christian, do you want to go over that real quick? Yes, it won for best original song for the on the Atchison Topeka and the Santa Fe. Again, a bop. Watch the if okay, watch the movie, but the entire choreography of that, really the second she gets off the train and they're all just like in motion. Like, yeah, that's great. And then nominated for score, which it did not win. All right. And yeah, this is the one that I mentioned would be my costumes winner too, um, over Beauty and the Beast. So I'm. Oh, okay. See, I separate from color and black and white uh, at this point still. There you go. Yeah. So yeah, if I did that, those would be my two winners. All right. Any further no. thoughts? Oh, go ahead. Oh, no, I was going to segue us. Oh, go for it. Well, back to the war. Yes, very much, very much moving on to another war type movie. Um, so this is another one that I picked. It was one that I knew I was going to pick the minute we signed on to do 1946. It is Alfred Hitchcock's Notorious. This one is, um, it's one of his that features Ingrid Bergman and um, Cary Grant. Um, Bergman plays the daughter of a convicted Nazi spy who in the beginning we see him go through his trial and realize that he was kind of um, a, a big wig for the Nazis who is now living in the United States. And as a result, Ingrid Bergman's character is recruited by, um, oh gosh, one of the American intelligence agencies. I can't even think of which one it is, but basically recruited by an agent who's played by Cary Grant to basically step into her father's footsteps and infiltrate a group of Nazis in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. Um, this group of Nazis is led by um, a man played by Claude Rains. Claude Rains, we talked about before, he's always brilliant. Um, he plays Alexander Sebastian, who is um, one of those who was not convicted of being a Nazi has gone on with his kind of ideologies and is trying to basically bring the Nazis back to power um, and kind of continue their conquest. So of course, Cary Grant and his agency want to figure out how they're going to do that. Ingrid Bergman's character is really kind of um, not really willing at first to go through those steps because it does require her to basically pose as his girlfriend and later wife. And so she's not really feeling that she did not abide by any of her father's ideals. She was very patriotic towards America and was very much against what the Nazis were doing. So, but she does decide to go on with this partially because she begins to fall in love with Cary Grant's character. Um, and what results is a pretty dangerous um, expedition for her as she kind of infiltrates this group of Nazis through Claude Rains. But at the same time, that's part of the story, her infiltrating Nazis. The other part of the story is her romance with Cary Grant. And really the whole time it's trying to figure out, we know she loves Cary Grant. Does Cary Grant really love her? Does he care about her? Is he just using her to do this for his agency? Who should she trust? That's kind of what this film is all about. Um, I love this movie so much. I think it's just brilliant from start to finish 
to me, it's one of Hitchcock's more understated movies. Um, I wouldn't call it underrated because I know a lot of people love Notorious, but to me, it doesn't feature what I think we would see from his typical direction. It's not typically as flashy. It is suspenseful, but it's much more subtle in that suspense. Um, and at the same time, we are still seeing Hitchcock big time as director through this movie. There are a lot of like outstanding shots here, different angles that he's working with to kind of capture Ingrid Bergman's place in this story. Um, the way he presents these characters and weaves through these dynamics is just terrific. Um, it, to me, it's some of the most impressive directorial work he's done. he did in his career, just because it's not as in your face, um, but it's still very much there. But the story itself is where this really thrives. Um, it's a fascinating story. It's fascinating to see what Bergman's character has to go through to kind of play these two sides. And I mean, last but not least, Ingrid Bergman is stunning, fantastic in this movie. Once again, kind of like the direction, in some ways she's very subtle, but it's still some of her best work. Same thing goes for Claude Rains. I love him in this movie. It's not on the level of what he did in Casablanca for me, but I think it is kind of a, a new direction for him from that movie. Um, it's very different in a lot of ways. And he is, once again, very, very sinister in a very subtle way. And he is absolutely brilliant here. And Cary Grant is Cary Grant. You know, he's he's awesome. He's pretty charismatic and not quite on the level that the other two are, but still those really good here as well. So looks brilliant. Good production design. It all works. Notorious. Great. Great post-war movie about the immediacy of post-war issues. Yeah, um, I'm not like the biggest fan of this. I do like it. I'm very much used to like the Hitchcock stuff where it's more, more suspense is in your face. Then it's like slowly uncovering the mysteries and the truth of what's happening and everything. I really like the, what was it like the coffee cup thing? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The big coffee cup, look up the production of that. Cause that's pretty cool. Inger Bergman is great in this. Claude Rains is great. Cary Grant's even good in this. He feels more supporting he feels more supporting to me than even Claude Rains does in this. Mm. But this is this is Ingrid's movie through and through. Yeah. Um, and it is, I do like that it gives you a level of mystery. And Hitchcock knows how to do that well, obviously. And this is Hitchcock right now through the war years where you have this, you have what? Foreign correspondent. What's the other one? Saboteur, Shadow of Doubt. Even. Doubt. Yeah. yeah, it's that. It's the mystery of the other and the sinister what lies beneath the truth so but it is good again not my favorite hitchcock by far but yeah i liked this movie it was not my favorite out of all the movies that we watched but um i really loved ingrid in this movie like following her story along and getting to watch her character evolve and what she went through and just, I don't want to spoil anything, but what she went through in just like how the plot unfolded with her father and then the Devlin and everything. Like I just really enjoyed her character a lot. I will say Devlin, I like, 
I, I don't know. I didn't like him. He made me mad. And I think maybe he's like one of those characters that you're supposed to love to hate, but he, I didn't love him as much. Um, I thought he was kind of an asshole to be quite honest, like just not very nice, but I think that's also part of his character throughout and his story, um, with this movie. So yes, loved Ingrid. Cary Grant was fine. I didn't like his character as much movie overall was enjoyable. I would watch again. I think Devlin, sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was just gonna say every time I think of this movie, for whatever reason, I don't pay as much attention. I did on this time for, you know, obvious reasons, but I always feel like Cary Grant is the character who he's there, but he's not there. And when he is there, he's like coming from behind a tree. And this could be a comedic moment where she's like, where the hell did you come from? And he's like, don't you know, I've always been here. And then again, she's like in, she's in a room and then he like pops out of a bookshelf. She's like, what the hell did you, I don't know. It's my observations of not paying attention the first two times I saw this movie. <laughs> yeah, I, Devlin is a jerk. And I think the thing about Devlin is that he's a secret agent. Like he behaves like a stereotypical secret agent might. Uh, he's an asshole, kind of similar to how James Bond is an asshole. Um, obviously I'm not comparing him like solely to James Bond. He doesn't do the cool shit that James Bond does, but in terms of just how they act, it's kind of similar. Um, and so I think that's part of it too, is that I think he does love Ingrid in some way, but he's also a secret agent. Um, and so he's got that on his mind as well, not to defend everything he does, but I think there's a complexity to it. Um, Whereas Ingrid Bergman, this movie is kind of like, it's almost a movie the censors might have a fun time with because a big part of Ingrid Bergman's character and why she's recruited for this mission is that she, her character has been known to be quote unquote promiscuous. Um, And in a way they kind of use that against her. And a big part of this movie is like her potentially having to sleep with Alexander Sebastian as his wife. so that's something that maybe you wouldn't typically expect from a movie 1940s, aside from movies like a film noir like this. Um, and I think it, it does kind of capture the way that she deals with that. Um, and also, I know that Hitchcock has talked about the kissing scenes between Cary Grant and Ingrid Bergman and that like they weren't allowed to kiss for like very long because of censors. So you would have them do this kind of interesting thing or like they would like kiss as they were talking um and so if you if you watch the movie it's hard to explain but you can see it when you watch the movie mm-hmm. it's kind of interesting and there's a reason behind that it's because of the censors um and trying to get behind some of that this one um did have two oscar nominations claude Rains did get nominated for supporting actor and it also got nominated for original screenplay it's interesting that this is an original screenplay yeah, I was looking and it sounds like it was loosely based on something, but that that was uncredited. So also poor Claude Rains. It feels like he's always nominated, always a bridesmaid. Yes. <laughs> Which is awful. All right. Any further thoughts on Notorious before our last movie? 
All right. Well, Christian, I'm going to let you take this away with, like you said, perhaps the most controversial movie we have ever discussed on the Gilded Films podcast. Get ready. If you have ever been, dear listeners, to Disney World or Disneyland, you may have ridden one of their most famous attractions, which is Splash Mountain, a terrifying near-death experience that anybody faces, especially if you were like me and they put you in the front row and you had no idea what to expect. While you're on this ride, you may think to yourself, what is this movie that I'm on? There's there's singing animals, they're having a good time, but I'm not like, I've never seen this movie in my life. Well, you probably haven't seen this movie. And in fact, we, I had to find this movie on the internet for us to watch. It is Disney's long lost movie because there's a lot of problems with it. And Disney doesn't even want you to see this. So this is a low key explanation. If you know what it is, well, look at you because you've probably seen it. That's right. We're talking about Song of the South, the movie that Disney doesn't want you to know about or remember. It was directed by Har Foster and Wilfred Jackson. And don't forget, produced by Walt Disney himself. Uh, let's see. Look, I don't even care what the plot of this movie is. It, there's a lot of shit with this movie. Let me get let me get some names. Song of the South. Okay, so it is about a young boy. Uh, what's his name? Johnny, played by Bobby Driscoll, who I believe was the voice of Peter Pan. Yep. Yeah. Okay. So that's kind of, yeah. <laughs> so it's about little Johnny who goes to live on his grandmother's plantation. While his father was away doing business or who really gives a shit. Um, and there he meets uh, some kids he can play with. He has his Aunt Tempe played by Hattie McDaniel because, you know, she's in this. She had to get whatever job she could get. Unfortunately, she gets this movie. And then he meets Uncle Remus. Whoa. So Uncle Remus is a black man who lives on this plantation. Uh, This is during Reconstruction era. So uh, there's a lot of things with that. He's happy-go-lucky. He tells stories. He sings songs. And Johnny sort of uh, warms up to him. And they warm up to each other. And sort of to get Johnny through his worries and his fears on this plantation, Uncle Remus tells him the story of Br'er Rabbit. And Br'er Rabbit escaping from Br'er Fox and Br'er Bear. And this is where we get animation and everybody has a zippity doodah fucking day or what have you. Um, yeah. There's a lot of controversy with this movie. Black people shouldn't be this happy on a plantation. And yet there's a lot of singing and dancing. The Disney thought that this was going to be like the gone with the wind of his studio in terms of success in 1946. People were not buying that, which was good. Um, Reading a lot of the fun facts about this where Disney didn't even attend the premiere. Um, He was there, but he didn't didn't sit in with the audience out of respect for James Baskett who couldn't sit in the theater. Why have the fucking premiere in Atlanta in the first place then and not in Los Angeles? Who knows why? Um, But yeah, there's just... I wanted to pick this because it is such a controversial movie. I love me a good controversy. The first time I watched this, because I've seen this now three times, y'all. The first time I watched this, I'm like, it's a fine movie. I don't see any harm in, uh, 
I guess the feeling that I get of it as in, I don't care what's happening right now. Like this isn't the end all be all movie. If you thought this was going to be a successful movie while Disney, you're out of your mind. It's kind of boring. Uh, now the third time I'm like, okay, there's a lot of shit going on here that shouldn't be going on. You all should not be this happy. Uh, please stop. James Basket. I know that you needed the job probably. It's a weird thing to think about though, that this is what like James Basket and Hattie McDaniel still had to be doing in 1946 is having these roles of slaves or former slaves, what have you, singing and dancing. It's not a happy world. I don't know. Listen to Karina uh, Longworth's podcast on this all. She explains it really in depth and detail. But the fact that Disney land and then world were like, hey, our new water attraction, we should totally model it after Song of the South because, you know, everybody loves that movie. F- f- fucking weird. Um, there could have been many, many other movies they could have did. I forgot exactly when Splash Mountain was created, but if you had The Little Mermaid, it's a damn water ride. I mean, come on. They are now changing it. I don't know when. There's no ending in sight for this ride to fit the princess and the frog, which cool. But at the same time, you're going from like a movie that is very negative feeling attitude towards black people to a movie where the one black character who is a princess is in it for like 10 minutes before she turns into a frog for the rest of the majority of the movie. But... (laughs) I really wanted you two to see this, so go ahead. And also, you can find this on the Internet Archives because it's never been released, and it probably will be released in the next 15 years when the copyright ends. As I've read, when the copyright ends, Disney has to put it out on home media or streaming or theaters, and if they don't, free game for everybody. Oh, yeah. Why hide it? I don't understand. It needs to... I let me before you guys talk. I personally think that this needs to be out there and shown to show that Disney is not, was not, and never will be a perfect company. I mean, they they kind of reflect that they're not a perfect company these days in other ways, but their history is this. They will always have this, and Splash Mountain is right now anyway is keeping this memory of this movie alive. And look, we can find it on the internet. Okay, go. I give this movie one star. I thought it was fucking horrible. And here is why, right? Like Disney as a whole, if you don't know much about Disney, it is not a happy, perfect, wonderful little world, right? Like it, granted, there are some great movies that Disney franchise has produced and has come out that we all love. But there are also things like this that are super problematic. One of the things that I hate about this movie, right? Like there is nothing wrong with people finding joy. Specifically, there is nothing wrong with Black people finding joy in terrible things that happen to them, right? And... I think there is something super fucked up about a white man producing a movie depicting Black people on plantations who are enslaved as happy, right? Because if this was done 
by, let's say, a Black director who was trying to share ways in which people who were enslaved found joy, I think that would be very different, but it it's not, right? Like this is white people trying to showcase that it wasn't all that bad. Mm-hmm. And yeah. that's super fucked up because it was really, really awful and terrible. And I just, I, I hate the film. I think there's something super wrong about white people trying to make it all better and put a Band-Aid on it. And this is one of those films. And right, Christian, I completely agree with you. I don't think Disney should be trying to hide that they created this film. I think that there are meaningful ways in which they can say, yes, we created this film and have conversations about why it's so fucked up. Mm -hmm. Like Mm -hmm. there are meaningful ways that they can have that conversation and not be promoting it as like, here's one of our best films ever done, right? Like you can acknowledge that you have a racist past and produced a racist film because that is what this is. Right. And And I know that, and I know that um, Whoopi Goldberg, who's having her own thing right now. (laughs) Yeah. But when she did become a Disney legend in 2015, um, she said that she, like, like I've been saying, she wants to see this movie come out at one point in her lifetime. I mean, it, it, okay. Get, so get this. It was re-released like multiple times up until 80, Mm -hmm. like 87 or so. But again, in our lifetimes now to have this movie release. So people do know, like Disney was at one point, a company that thought, yeah, this movie's fine. Everybody will love this movie. Why not take the family? Yeah. I um, gosh, I have so many thoughts. I don't know where to start. I will start with my history of this movie. Because my history of this movie is through Zippity-Doo-Dah. Um, that, I don't know if it's still a popular song, but when we were kids, it was still a popular song. I know that because my fa- my parents bought these like, I don't know if you ever had these. They're like the VHS Disney sing-alongs. <gasps> yes. And it was on there from yeah. this movie. Um, so that was my introduction to Song of the South, though I didn't really know at the time. I, as a kid, I was never like, oh yeah, I want to watch Song of the South. Um, but I always knew Zippity Doodah. In fact, I'm pretty sure when we were going to like, even like Disney Channel stars, like re- mix that song and continue uh, to sing it when i was looking for you know a little song today because i always play song when i introduce myself to these to whoever uh miley cyrus actually sang it on That's whatever who it, was. it is yeah yes yes um so to me, that's part of the because I agree with both of you. I don't agree with Disney hiding this movie. One, because I think that's just their sign of not coming to terms with their guilt from it. Two, they're the ones in charge of it. Like they're the studios, you know, they're clear and they clearly still have their own ethical issues. So I agree. I think release it, have some people talk about it, include that with wherever you put the movie, these conversations about why this is a problem. Um, and I think part of the reason for that is because that is that people still have a connection to this movie, even if they don't know it. Like if you sing zippity Doodah, it's connected to this movie. This is where it came from. Um, Splash Mountain. Splash Mountain. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. So this is not a movie that has been erased from public consciousness, even though Disney is hiding it. So put it out there. Let's talk about it. 
kind of like we are now. Um, yeah, the movie is pretty messed up um, in, a lot, in a lot of ways. I, I really don't have a whole lot to add because I think you two both pretty much hit the nail on the head of why this movie is so messed up. But it does really come off as like they're trying to present some revisionist history of this time period where it wasn't that bad. We didn't treat them that poorly. Um, them as in slaves. And it's also, Christian, you mentioned like this actually takes place like Reconstruction era. I think that's another issue with the film is you can't really tell when it takes place. No, you cannot at all. Like I'm watching and I'm like, these, it could be that they're slaves. That's how it comes off to me. It could also be that they're like sharecroppers or, or living on the plantation reconstruction era the fact that it's not clear when this takes place is also an issue i think um because once again i think they're failing to really grapple with that um i'm also i'm sorry but i don't know who in their right mind would think oh yeah we literally just enslaved and murdered and treated people so horribly let's just make a fucking fun animated film yeah. about it. That mm. sounds like a good idea. The one thing I will give it is I do like the blend of like the live action and animation thing because it is, I mean, so semi new for its time. But other than that, I'm just like, Egh. the animation is good. I mean, it's Disney, um, you know, so that, that blend does work pretty well. What I will say though, like even if you put, look past all the controversial stuff, I don't think it's a very good movie. Like, I think it's kind of dull and pretty boring. And I think the characters are, like, annoying as shit. I'll say it. I'm always always not afraid to say it. These child actors are awful. Like, these are terrible performances. And I a lot of that is on the director. You know, they're kids. The director needs to step in and show these kids how to perform. Mm -hmm. But when you're watching it, like, it's bad. Like, I, it was kind of painful um, to watch at times. Yeah, the one little girl falling yeah yeah oh, she was awful here's, here's something that i found it's on definitely read like the wikipedia page of this but i guess two naacp staff members and it's like what brett said here they were confused by the film's reconstruction setting writing it was something that also confused other reviewers who from the tone of the film and the type of similar recent hollywood movies assumed it also must be set during the time of slavery mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that's what it is it's like walt disney's let's make gone with the wind but for kitties I will also say, and I actually texted Christian this, when we went to the archives page to watch this, it is filled with five-star reviews of this movie. And a lot of them are like, you know, I don't see an issue with it, which is really bad. And then they're sitting there like, well, it was made in 1946. Okay, I'm here to say that's a bullshit excuse because the NAACP protested this movie when it came out, okay? There were always issues with this movie and they were well known. So just because it was made in 1946, sorry, not a good excuse. How could you not see anything bad about this? Right. I, I don't know. It's one thing like if you enjoy like the animated parts of the movie or if there are things about the movie that you enjoy, that's fine. That, that's part of being a, a complex viewer is that there might be things that you enjoy about it despite the enormous issues. But there are enormous issues. Um, and that's, that's not avoidable. I think you do make a good point about the actors because I try to not place blame on the side of like, 
James Basket or Hattie McDaniel, because like you said, it was so difficult to get those jobs. This is I what think, you, this is what you're given. And I think we spoke about this before when we did Gone with the Wind, but like Hattie McDaniel said that she would rather be taking something like this than not having a job at all. Right. Right. Which, you know, unfortunately that's how it just was for her. And even with um, her winning a damn Oscar. Yeah. And no, then also yeah, exactly. about James Basket, like even after he died with James Basket, his wife said that Walt Disney was always kind to them and like always willing to give him that job and give him whatever else. I think he died shortly after. Mm-hmm. But mm. yeah, I mean, this is seven years removed from Hattie McDaniel's Oscar for playing a slave, mind you. But it's still that's the job that she's able to get, um, which is very sad at the same time don't blame her for taking it. You know, um, that's the situation she was put in. And again, come 2039, when the, when the uh, copyright goes out of print, Disney has the, if they want to keep the rights, they have one big option and it's to release it. And if they don't open season. Yeah, exactly. That'll be the ultimate test, which I mean, I hope I'm running Disney by then because I'll release it. (sighs) Um, zippity doodah i know you had texted me and said you wanted to have a discussion about this and um on the ashton topeka santa fe yeah so what are your thoughts on that i so i think that on the atchison topeka is a bop it's a banger it's great it's lively zippity doodah is iconic i mean obviously like you said we've heard it through our childhood it's the theme of Splash Mountain and everything, which for a lot of Disney fans is a very iconic ride. It's again, terrifying. Don't like one time I wrote it. I'm forever <laughs> timid of that ride, but I do like that. I can pick between the two considering one, one in a different year, which we'll talk about that in a second. And then one in another year, I would prefer on the actress in Topeka and Santa Fe. I just think it's a better song. Um, Zippity Doodah is fun. But if I want to dance to a song, which I can dance to both of these somehow, it's going to be the one about the train. Yeah, it's just the iconicness, though, of Zippity Doodah, because that's what Disney songs do. They're so simple to hum. They're so simple to sing. And then they become instant icons. Yeah, and like you said, they they both won best song, though, in different years. I, I can't help but think of if they were both competing in 1946, which would have won. And I don't have an answer just because it's so far removed. Yeah. Probably zippity doodah because it was the Disney song. Um, and like I said, it, it, it has become iconic, but yeah. The other thing is I agree. I go with on the Ashton Topeka Santa Fe, just because to me, that one is an actual, like the lyrics evolve mm-hmm. and there's a lot of them. Zippity Doodah is the same thing over and over. Um, so as fun as it can be, Ashton Topeka is more fun and it's just a better written song um, that, that holds a, a better place in the movie too. Because obviously Zippity Doodah is a huge part of what Song of the South is, but I think Ashton Topeka captures the essence of Harvey Girls better than this does. Hmm. Well, should I go ahead and say what one? Yeah, go for it. So it for and I don't remember again, listen to Karina Longworth's podcast if you must remember this, because she has like eight episodes over this movie. It's amazing. 
I don't remember exactly the why she said it was like this, but this did win two Oscars in the next year. So not in the 19th Academy Awards, but in the 20th. Uh, it did win for Zippity Doodah for the original song. And then James Basket won an honorary Oscar for his role. I did read that Walt Disney really lobbied him for just like a straight up supporting actor role, which I bet you he would have won. But they settled for the honorary one, meaning that he was the first black male to win an Oscar in whatever capacity uh, acting. I don't know if anybody had won before that, which is saying something because, you know, uh, and then this was also nominated for score. So, but yeah. Yeah, I was going to see if, because I saw that he won that honorary Oscar. He died in 1948, but it looks like he didn't die until July. So he would have been alive to accept that. Hmm. So, interesting. Also, that one person on Letterboxd said, there's no more wrong than this than the crows and Dumbo. And look, they both, I mean, they're both bad things, but at yeah. least Disney acknowledges that in Dumbo by putting the tiniest little warning on it. But I did see that uh, James Basket looking at his filmography, Dumbo, Fat Crow voice, uncredited. Mm. Interesting. But no, I, yeah, I'm glad you picked it just because it is, I think it is a movie that does need to be discuss like let's not pretend this didn't exist um or, yeah um and so yeah it's one of those disney movies that i would certainly not recommend unless you want to look at it kind of historically and engage with it partially by listening to that podcast from korean longworth because it is pretty excellent i think unless i'm forgetting one that's the only season she's done where she focused on one film the entire time so yeah. that's pretty significant um, too. Oh, I forgot what I was going to say. Oh, I mean, Maddie, when I was watching this, she said that she owned a VHS copy of this growing up. Oh. Yeah. And then the, uh, okay, if you do watch on the Internet Archives, it's kind of amazing how good the quality of this is. Yeah, it is. Like, what, what print is this? <laughs> All right. So those are the six films we picked to discuss today. Now we'll go ahead and jump into our honorable or dishonorable mentions other movies from this year that we may have watched or heard of but didn't discuss in depth and so got a pretty decent list here gonna start with one that i did not realize was a release this year it is baseball bugs um one of my favorite looney tune shorts honestly can we talk about how looney tunes and warner brothers at least acknowledge their racist past as well <laughs> By putting up, like, um, they put up full-on disclaimers, notices. I remember having a DVD set, and again, Whoopi was on there saying, what you're about to see was a product of its time. And then Disney's like, Yeah. Well, we didn't ever did that. No, we didn't do that. And Looney Tunes is like, no, we're going to own up to this. Yeah. Uh, Next, we have Hair Raising Hair. I'm pretty sure this is the one. With it introduces that red monster with bugs. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, this one sounds interesting. A night in Casablanca, which I hate. I didn't get to see it again, but it's the Marx Brothers, oh. and yeah, and like Warner Brothers made a big deal about it because they're like, you can't use Casablanca, and Groucho was like, we've been the Marx Brothers longer than you've been the Warner Brothers. 
Oh. Yeah, so we can do whatever the fuck we want. <laughs> but it's great and it's funny. You should watch it. Okay. Uh, next, we have She-Wolf of London. I like the name. She-Wolf <laughs> <laughs> of London. Oh, that's, that's for our dear friend Anthony because he loves all the Universal Monsters. Right, right. Yeah. But I've seen it too, and it's good. Yeah. It's it's not like directed directly related to the werewolf man. What's it called? The wolf man, the werewolf man. Whatever. Uh, next we have to each his own. Um, Olivia de Havilland won her Oscar for this. Oh, I like yeah. it. It's very unseen because it's like it appears on TCM twice a year and mm. it like at two in the morning, but it's good. Very nice. Uh, next, we have The Killers, um, adapted from the Hemingway short story. I really love The Killers. Um, kind of a classic gangster noir. If you get the Criterion, they also have the short film that was made by Andre Tarkovsky. And that's really interesting, too. So I'd recommend it. All right. Next, we have My Darling Clementine. This is one of the takes on the Wyatt Earp story and the gunfight of the OK Corral starring Henry Fonda. And I think it's pretty awesome. Um, it's a John Ford movie and it, I think it's one of his better ones. Hmm. I also enjoyed it. You did enjoy it. Yeah, you did watch that one. So next we have Duel in the Sun, another Western with Gregory Peck, I believe. Um, Sounds hot. Did you guys see it? I didn't see it. I rented it and never got to it. So, oh. or from the library, I checked it out from the library. So, never got to it. I just meant the title sounds hot. Duel in the Sun. That oh, I, sounds like a. I figured you were referencing Gregory Peck. Oh, no, 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 not Gregory Peck. Uh, look up his grandson. <laughs> Don't mind if I do. Uh, next, we have Gilda, one of the bigger movies from this year, I think. It's another one I didn't quite get to. Put the blame on Mame. I've seen it. It's, uh, I sh I, I, that's one of those I should rewatch because I always think it's fine. Because mm. I'm always like, oh, I'm going to get something out of this. And the most I get is when she first appears on screen. And then I'm just like, eh, fine. Is this Rita Hayworth? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, next, we have Python. This is one. Um, Oh, gosh, who directed this? Oh, there he is. We're looking at Gregory Peck's grandson, who's, yeah, hey, how you doing? Ethan Peck. Ethan Peck. Ethan Peck. Yes. 10 out of 10. Is that Peak Peck? Would recommend. All right. Paisan, Rosalini. Oh, yes, Rosalini. That's who directed. Um, not one of my favorite rosalini films that i've seen um but still pretty good um it's an interesting italian war movie world war ii uh next we have the postman always rings twice which i think is fine um but lana turner's pretty good at it it's sexy it is sexy uh next we have the spiral staircase a really interesting suspense film from this year dorothy mcguire plays um like a mute character who is stalked by a serial killer um it's interesting it, it's it's pretty good yeah it's decent next we have one stairway to heaven aka it was also called a matter of life and death this is a powell and pressburger movie that i completely did not realize was released this year or else i might have watched it right and it's short too yeah but 
Next, we have one that was actually on Christian's top five new watches of 2021, Orson Welles' The Stranger. I concur with Christian. The movie's excellent. It is. It's fascinating. It's so good. Um, Definitely watch it. It's probably, it's one of those movies where uh, it's probably out there on the internet or something. But TCM played it like last week too. So check out. I don't know when this episode's coming out, but check out TCM on demand because yeah, it's it's incredible. That's the one that's in the public domain, I believe. Um, oh, so it's probably out there. Yeah, it's it's out there quite a few places. So definitely check that out. Um, next one we have is Undercurrent. Catherine Hepburn, um, a movie that I always forget exists, but when I saw it, excuse me, I really liked it, and it's like her her husband has a secret and he may or be not be like a murder or something, Ooh. but like also Vincent Minnelli directed it. And it's not like a musical. Ooh. Hmm. Yeah. It's really good though. Perfect. Next we have make mine music slash Willie, the operatic whale. <laughs> yeah. So it's a, it's a Disney movie. Yes. <laughs> yeah. It's a Disney movie. And within it is the story of Willie, the operatic whale. And that's why I put that there. Because it's like the best story of it. But there's also like Casey at the Bat, which you would yeah. enjoy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a it's fine. The best part is the Willie the Operatic Whale. <laughs> Leave me alone. Next, we have The Strange Love of Martha Ivers. Yes. Uh, Barbara Stanwyck. I watched it last month. Uh, I just wanted to. It's fine. It's another type of mystery of like, who is this woman? Um, Kirk Douglas's uh, first movie, actually. Oh, okay. Hmm. And last but not least, we have the Cat Concerto. This sounds like maybe a Tom and Jerry one. Am I right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but, but, but it came out, I think it came out the year before, but it won the Oscar for this year. So I put it down. But it is their, it is their honest to God, best one. Oh. Yeah. It's so good. It's not them running around a house. It's just Tom and Jerry and a piano in the main <laughs> one. All right. Perfect. Well, that is our list of honorable slash dishonorable mentions. Might want to check some of those out. And some might appear in our next section, which is, of course, our personal awards for the year. And so we'll do this like we always do. We're going to start with the screenplay categories. Now, Christian, I don't know what you came across. Um, I will start us off here with original screenplay, and I actually only have three in this category. Hopefully, none of these are actually adapted. Um, but I'll start us off. Best original screenplay. My number three is Paisan. My number two is The Stranger, and my number one is Notorious. Now, Haley, I believe you only have one in this category, which is Notorious. Very nice, Christian. What do you have here? I have five. Oh, okay. The Strange Love of Martha Ivers is my number five. Number four, To Each His Own. Number three, A Night in Casablanca. Number two, The Stranger. And number one, Notorious. Very nice. All in agreement there. Next, we're going to go on to Best Adapted Screenplay. And so here I do have five. My number five is Brief Encounter. Number four is The Killers. Number three is The Big Sleep. Number two is The Best Years of Our Lives. And of course, my number one is It's a Wonderful Life. For me, my number five is Beauty and the Beast. My number four is The Big Sleep. 
My number three is the Harvey Girls. My number two is the best years of our lives. And my number one is It's a Wonderful Life. All right. My number five is the Harvey Girls. Number four, Beauty and uh, La Belle et la Bête. <laughs> and number three is Brief Encounter. Number two is the best years of our lives. And my winner is It's a Wonderful Life. All right. We'll see if the streak continues here. I feel like I say this every time. But really, the acting categories were very, very difficult for me um, to pin down. So in supporting performance, I do have a full 10 here. My number 10 is Myrna Loy for The Best Years of Our Lives. Number nine is Victor Mature from My Darling Clementine. He plays Doc Holliday in that movie. Number eight, I have Ann Baxter for The Razor's Edge. Number seven, I have Orson Welles for The Stranger. He plays a great villain. Number six, I have Harold Russell for The Best Years of Our Lives. Number five, I have Teresa Wright for The Best Years of Our Lives. Number four, I have Henry Travers for It's a Wonderful Life. Number three, Donna Reed for It's a Wonderful Life. Number two, Lionel Barrymore for It's a Wonderful Life. And my number one is Claude Rains for Notorious. Second win I've given him, I believe. No, third, third. For me, I only had nine. I did number nine as Chill Wills, which I just really love that name, from the Harvey Girls. Number eight, Joyce Carey from Brief Encounter. Number seven, Martha Vickers from The Big Sleep. Number six, Harold Russell, The Best Years of Our Lives. Number five, Teresa Wright, The Best Years of Our Lives. Number four, Angela Lansbury, The Harvey Girls. Number three, Donna Reed, It's a Wonderful Life. Number two, Ann Baxter, The Razor's Edge. And number one, Henry Travers, It's a Wonderful Life. All right. Uh, my number 10, I have Virginia Mayo for the best years of our lives. And number nine, I have Elizabeth Scott. She's sort of uh, the villainous character in The Strange Love of Martha Ivers. Number eight, I have Kathy O'Donnell in The Best Years of Our Lives. She is Homer's lady, Wilma. At number seven, I actually have James Basket for Song of the South. Mm. Yeah, I think he's decent in what he's given, you know. Um, at number six, I have Claude Rains for Notorious. I have number five, Teresa Wright for The Best Years of Our Lives. Number four, Harold Russell for The Best Years of Our Lives. Number three, Orson Welles for The Stranger. Number two, Lionel Barrymore for It's a Wonderful Life. And my winner is Henry Travers for It's a Wonderful Life. Dear old Clarence. I really could have gone with any of my top five there and I would have been happy with it. So I love Clarence. Clarence, good old Clarence. He's my favorite. All right, moving on to best lead performance. Um, I have 10 here once again. My number 10 is Lana Turner from The Postman Always Rings Twice. Number nine, Jane Wyman from The Yearling. Number eight, I have Judy Garland for The Harvey Girls. Number seven, I have Humphrey Bogart for The Big Sleep. Uh, number six, Dorothy McGuire for The Spiral Staircase. And this is where it gets tough. Uh, number five, Celia Johnson for Brief Encounter. Number four, Frederick March for The Best Years of Our Lives. Number three, Dana Andrews for The Best Years of Our Lives. 
Number two, Ingrid Bergman for Notorious. And number one, good old James Stewart for It's a Wonderful Life. All right. I only had eight. So number eight, I have Cary Grant for Notorious. Number seven, Celia Johnson for Brief Encounter. Number six, Lauren Bacall for Big Sleep. (laughs) Number five, Humphrey Bogart for The Big Sleep. Number four, Ingrid Bergman for Notorious. Number three, Judy Garland, The Harvey Girls. Number two, Dana Andrews, The Best Years of Our Lives. And then number one, James Stewart, It's a Wonderful Life. All right. Um, My number 10 is Edward G. Robinson for The Stranger. My number nine is Judy Garland for The Harvey Girls. Number eight is Ingrid Bergman for Notorious. Number seven, I put Myrna Loy here in The Best Years of Our Lives. Yeah. Number six, I have Jean-Maurice for Beauty and the Beast. Number five, Donna Reed in It's a Wonderful Life. Number four, Frederick March for The Best Years of Our Lives. Number three, Dana Andrews for The Best Years of Our Lives. Numero dos, Celia Johnson for Mm. Brief Encounter. And my winner, you called it, Sir Laurence Olivier for Henry V. (laughs) There you go. Not allowed. Not allowed on this podcast. Or James Stewart for It's a Wonderful Life. That sounds bad. Good job. (laughs) Good job. All right. Can I just, Henry V can burn in hell. I just need to reiterate that. Time to make that clear. Yeah, this episode just, as well. just had to <laughs> lead with that. All right. Going into best director at number five, I have Robert Siodmak for The Killers. Number four, William Wyler for The Best Years of Our Lives. Number three, Orson Welles for The Stranger. Number two, Frank Capra for It's a Wonderful Life. Ooh. And my number one is Alfred Hitchcock for Notorious. I would like you to change. It's Alfred Hitchcock. You can't argue too much with that. I can, Capra's great. It's a Wonderful Life. Oh. It's a Wonderful Life is literally like your favorite movie ever, right after what, Casablanca? The direction that Hitchcock does in Notorious is so subtly visible that I can't ignore it. Let me put it that way. I need you to get out. Um, okay. Going <laughs> off of that, number five, Alfred Hitchcock, Notorious. Number four, Howard Hawks, The Big Sleep. Number three, George Sidney, The Harvey Girls. Number two, William Wyler, The Best Years of Our Lives. And number one, Frank Capra, it's a wonderful life as it should be. All right. Get out, Brett. (laughs) All right. My number five is David Lean for Brief Encounter. Number four, Orson Welles, The Stranger. And then I have Jean Cocteau for Beauty and the Beast. My number two is William Wyler for The Best Years of Our Lives. And my number one, as it should be, Sir Laurence Olivier (laughs) for Henry V. <laughs> and or Frank Capra for It's a Wonderful Life. There we go. So Brett is outnumbered. Okay. Best picture, the big one. Oh, God, here we go. Top 10 of the year. Number 10, The Harvey Girls. Number nine, Beauty and the Beast. 
number eight, Brief Encounter, number seven, My Darling Clementine, number six, The Killers, number five, The Big Sleep, number four, The Stranger, number three, The Best Years of Our Lives, number two, Notorious, and number one, It's a Wonderful Life, by some distance, by some distance. Good job. You fixed it. All right. For mine, I have seven. Number seven, Brief Encounter. Number six, Beauty and the Beast. Number five, Notorious. Number four, The Big Sleep. Number three, The Harvey Girls. Number two, The Best Years of Our Lives. And number one, absolutely no contest. It's a Wonderful Life. All right. My number 10 is Notorious. Number nine, each his own. Number eight, Undercurrent. Number seven, A Night in Casablanca. Definitely watch it. It's funny. Number six, The Stranger. Number five, Beauty and the Beast. Number four, Brief Encounter. Number three, The Harvey Girls. Number two, The Best Years of Our Lives. And you called it number one. No. No. (laughs) The Yearling. At least it's or, not your fifth. or it's a wonderful life. Mm-hmm. Yes. All right. Well, yeah, quite a bit of similarities there, at least in the winners. Um, we all agree for 1946, the, the best of them all was It's a Wonderful Life, despite a number of great movies here. So not a big surprise there, but that just confirms it for us, even after watching those additional movies. Awesome. So yeah, glad we were able to come back to this. As Christian said, we wouldn't typically do a couple of top tens in between this, but like in the way, I will say it was all, we're all making advancements. Christian, myself, and Haley, we all did some things that were good for us. And so, um, but now we're back. And so um, thanks as always for listening. Be sure to rate, review, rate, review, and subscribe (laughs) at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Um, and of course, follow us on all the social media out there. Um, thanks as always to Joshua Arnaldi for doing our theme music. Thank you, Haley, for joining us today. Any final thoughts from you? I'm just glad that I could, you know, grace the two of you with my presence. Also, <laughs> thank you for being accommodating with me. For those of you that may not know, I do work for student housing. So I am on call this weekend and sometimes have to jump off for phone calls. Um, but Brett and I are back in the Lawrence area. So that's my last thought, which is really exciting for us. We're excited to hang out in person with Christian. Mm-hmm. And Toby. <laughs> and and Toby. Toby, but he's, he's not on here today. He's over there now. Oh, hi, Toby. <laughs> Christian, any final thoughts from you? He said, hello. Um, <laughs> Um, our next year is going to be good. We'll have Zay back with us for that. Um, and saying that Haley and Brett are nearby, I will leave you with a quote from Voldemort. I can touch you now. (laughs) (laughs) That is not what I needed on this Sunday. It's fine. As I just like touch Brett's scar on his forehead. (laughs) Brett does not have a scar on his forehead. I do have one, just like Harry Potter. Oh, do you really? Oh, okay. (laughs) We can try and make sure he has one by the next time you see him. (laughs) No. 
All right. Well, yes. Thanks for listening. Be sure to tune into the next one. And yeah, we'll catch up then. Bye. Thank you.